All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome. How are you? Is everybody okay? You locked in? You strapped in? You on the treadmill? You in your car? Are you hiking? Are you walking? Are you doing work around the house? Are you visiting someone in the hospital? Where'd that one come from? Why'd you have to bring it down, man? Why'd you have to buzz kill it? Are you in the hospital? Am I helping you out? Am I taking your mind off it? Are you mixing me with morphine right now? Are you high? Are you buzzed? I can, I can tell, man. I can tell you're high. That doesn't even matter anymore. Everyone is fucking high. It's crazy. The last time I was in New York a couple weeks ago, the entire city smells like weed. It's all right. Enjoy. Numb out, man. Numb out. Because when it, the shit goes down, you want to be numb. <laughs> it's like those are your, you want to be awake. You want to be alert. When the shit goes down, you want to be ready or you want to be numb. I don't know. So what's happening? Well, let me tell you. Karina Longworth is on the show today. You might know her, her podcast. You must remember this. I knew about it, but I didn't listen to it until uh, I knew I was going to talk to her. And it's quite good. It's fucking awesome. And it got me kind of going. You know, she's very thorough and she's a real journalist and a real film critic and somebody who clearly knows about movies. She's done major sort of audio series on uh, the Manson thing, on the blacklist, on the two gossip columnists at the beginning of Hollywood. She's very immersed in the first hundred years of film, film history. So I listened to sort of uh, get my feet wet. I listened to her Dino and Sammy, her Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. series. I think it was like seven or eight thorough podcasts about the intersection of, you know, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin. Uh, but through that, you get the mob, you get Sinatra, you get the Rat Pack, you get uh, racial and cultural upheavals around, you know, the, the arc of these guys' lives. Uh, you get uh, toxic masculinity. You get uh, 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 women around those men. You get Marilyn. I mean, it's, it, that, it's really high-level cultural criticism, you know, which is what you can do with film. Because film is a portal into all of it. You know, once you, I mean, you can do it with paintings and you can do it with other art, but usually that's, it becomes self-referential to the art world most of the time. I mean, you can look at paintings in uh, relation to history and what may have been going on in the world. You know, obviously like, you know, what is Guernica about? What is, uh, you know, some of the early Warhol stuff about what is the shift from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance about? You know, there are cultural forces and uh, are and creative forces and technological forces that are driving everything. But with film, you know, something we all sort of can engage in and understand on a simplistic level. If you just want to watch a movie for entertainment, you can do that. If you want to use it as a doorway into something much deeper, broader and revealing, you can do that. It all depends on, you know, what you got in your fucking head, man. So I found it very compelling and I was, uh, I was excited to talk to her. I guess I'm doing stand up again in a, in a, in a long form way. I've, uh, I've agreed to do a date. <laughs> I'm going to beat the, I'm going to beat the ice house. 
the newly renovated ice house in Pasadena on Thursday, April 27th at 8 p.m. You can go to WTFpod.com slash tour to get tickets. I guess I'm entering the world of an hour of stand-up again. We'll figure it out. You know, if you guys all come, we can uh, go loosey-goosey on it. I think I've got about a good a good half hour of stuff that I've been working on right now. And then we'll just riff it out, man. Come on down to the Ice House and I'll riff it out. We'll see what we can find. All right? That's on April 27th, 8 p.m. Go to WTFpod.com slash tour to get tickets. The audience was so hot at the fucking comedy store last night. It was crazy. Just one of those nights. I don't know. I went on. It was pretty early. Both rooms. And it just, it just was like everything clicked. And I did a bunch of new shit. And I riffed. And I didn't record it. Great crowds. Both rooms. I've been uh, watching a lot of stuff, primarily for research, for interviews. I just watched, I got an interview. I hope that happens. I hope uh, Lily Rabe and I can pull it together. We keep missing each other. But she's in that love and death thing for HBO. The acting was fucking tremendous. The way they fleshed out the story is tremendous. Something to look forward to. This is a deep tease for a show. I don't even know when it's on. I also watched... uh, Ali Wong and and is it Steve Ewan? Is that how you say his last name? Because I'm going to talk to him. I watched that beef the whole season on a screener for Netflix. That thing was kind of on fire. They acted the fuck out of it. I don't know if I'm just not watching enough stuff or all of a sudden I'm just noticing acting different, but I've been very impressed with the level of performance I've seen lately in some of the shows I'm taking in. Now, when you hear me today... What is it going to be Monday? If you listen to this the day it comes out, I imagine I will have watched Succession last night uh, and I will have been thrilled about it. So I, uh, I uncrocked the kraut. I pulled the kraut out of the crock. For those of you who have been following along, there's a couple of things going on in my life. And one of those things is um, uh, fermenting. It's again, it's not a huge undertaking. I just, uh, I had made some, uh, a short ferment kraut, some ruby kraut with red cabbage. That was a five day, uh, ferment. I'm saying this like I, I'm, I know what I'm talking about. And then I just did regular kraut for three weeks, a day shy of three weeks. Cause I wanted to get it out. And, uh, I gotta be honest with you. As I said, the last time I talked to you that the best that can happen after three weeks, the worst that can happen is I'm, I'm out five pounds of cabbage and three tablespoons of salt. The best that can happen is the best crowd ever. And got to say pretty fucking close, really amazing, really good, tasty, exciting. It's exciting. Is that weird? I mean, what, what, how big is your life? What are you out there on a boat? Are you out there on water skis? Are you out there fishing for the big fish? Are you out there cooking the meat outdoors? What are you doing? Huh? Are you flying? Are you bungee jumping? Are you jumping out of planes? Are you climbing rock walls? Are you, are you gripping the nubs? Huh? Are you gripping the nubs in the strip mall? Huh? Are you? What are you doing? Well, I just made kraut from scratch and it's pretty fucking great. I'm no hero. It's not a tremendous victory. But it's a nice thing to know that I can do. In a pinch, I can make a kraut. You're going to have to wait three weeks. So I hope it's not, you know, a panic. I hope it's not a uh, unleavened bread thing. I hope it's not, we got to get out of here. 
bring the crowd. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. It still needs another few days. It's not quite grab the crowd. And then you'll have a, that'll be part of the, the next Pesach ceremony. The, the crowd that didn't ferment the fullest because the Jews had to get out quick. It's not fully fermented crowd. It's the half crowded crowd. So Karina Longworth has a very interesting uh, speaking style on her podcast. She paces herself well. She's got a very uh, uh, engaged sense of humor and she's very thorough. Um, I was happy that her primary resource for Dean Martin, uh, there were several, but she definitely leaned pretty heavily on the Nick Tosh's book, Dino, which I love. One of my favorite books. But it was it was exciting to get back into the mind of things, getting back into trying to see the art of things, uh, not the content of things, not the box office of things. Her podcast, you must remember this, you can get wherever you get podcasts. There are lots of seasons you can listen to, and tomorrow is the premiere of the new season on the erotic 90s. I should point out that a few times we talk about her husband, Ryan, but don't mention his full name. And if you're not aware, that's filmmaker Ryan Johnson, who I talked to. So this is me talking to Karina Longworth. I was I was somehow haunted by the idea of Hollywood when I was very young and, mm-hmm. and the idea of old Hollywood. Yeah. But I didn't have any understanding of it. I was just sort of obsessed with... Um, black and white photographs of actors and movie stills. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know why. Did, what was your experience? Because it feels like you're occupying in some of the podcasts a, a sort of haunted space. Totally. I mean, I, I that was kind of how I thought of it initially because I had the same experience, but I grew up here in L.A., mm. um, not part of the film industry at all, but in the 80s when I was growing up here, it was just so normal to be obsessed with this stuff. Really? Like yeah. other kids? Everybody knew about, like, Elizabeth Taylor and Bob Hope. Like, there are certain figures that were just ever-present. Yeah, Um, because their names are on things. Well, it was like, Bob Hope was like, he had this house in Toluca Lake that he opened up for an open house once a year. Yeah. And so if you lived in that part of the valley, like, you'd go to Bob Hope's house once a year. Really? Yeah. So you weren't, you grew up in what, like Woodland Woodland Hills or something? I I grew up in Studio City. Okay, so, and your folks weren't involved with the show business? No, my dad was an accountant, and my mom was like sort of an artist, just sort of a mentally ill mom. Yeah, no, I have one of those. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. and so they they liked movies, but they weren't in the business. What kind of uh, art did your mentally ill mom do? Illustration. Um, She would like draw my portrait a lot. She tried to do greeting cards, but like there were really sad pencil illustrations. <laughs> so it didn't really work out. Oh, my mom w- was uh, did abstract uh, sweatpants and sweatshirts. <laughs> nice. Just your <so>, <laughs> big idea was to splatter sweatshirts and sweatpants. That's like what Julie Klausner is doing now with her tie-dye. Is it? Yeah. She has a tie-dye business. How would, how's that going for her? It seems like it's going great. Oh, really? <laughs> well, she's got a, at least twice a week she can promote the things. <laughs> yeah. So, I, but but growing up here, you, you really found that other... Because, like, when I think about what you're doing, and I know the podcast is popular... Um, but I, I wonder how, how much people know anymore or how yeah. much people care anymore. I mean, that's what's crazy is that I'm only 42. I mean, I'm obviously that's older than a lot of people. Right. But it's like I – it feels like 
it was so present not that long ago to me, and right. now it just feels like it's gone. But isn't that weird? Can you track that as a as a intellectual when that happened? I'm tr- actually kind of trying to do that right now because yeah. the season that I'm working on is about the 90s. Yeah. Um, and so I'm I'm really trying to figure out like what is the end of this thing that you're involved in? Yeah. The romantic, seedy, but but gl- glamorous world of Hollywood. Yeah, and it's you know. I always thought the tagline of the podcast is that it's Hollywood's first century, yeah. which could mean a lot of things sure. based on like when you define the start of Hollywood. When do you define it? Around 1908. With which film? That's basically when they start making movies in the city of Hollywood. Like over in uh, like Echo Park. And, or where, where was the Keystone? Like where? Uh, mm-hmm. That's like Los Feliz. Los Feliz, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, then you could say that the Hollywood business of making feature films doesn't really start until around 1915. Uh-huh. But I've just kind of always thought of it as the 20th century. Right. And, you know, not So you're being... out of it. You're out of the first—we're out of the first century by a few years. I would say so, yeah. yeah. But my primary concern has, like, always basically been from about 1915 to, I would say, the end of the 1900s. Right. And and so when what are you what are you finding in terms of when you think it's out? Because it was long before—it seems like it was be- before— these platforms and and, totally. and before streaming, it, it must have been somewhere, probably in the late seventies, right? Well, I don't know because, as yeah. I said, like it, it felt like it was very present and important in the eighties and to some extent in the nineties. The history or show business? The history. I huh. mean, even just the idea that like the Oscars always had this element of like trotting out like you know guys. like somebody who won sure. an Oscar 50 years before right or even later than that having Jack Nicholson in the front row know, instead of him. having Nicole Kidman I miss him it's really weird because that was what I I used to love watching the Oscars I'm, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm obviously not as much of a, uh, a film nerd as you it's your job in a way <laughs> but but I mean it was you felt that it was a community yeah and there were these people that were it's like rock and roll I mean you can track the beginning of this it's not like ancient history mm-hmm. so a lot of those cats were still alive yeah and I imagine there's no one there's not many people to trot out anymore yeah that's true but I mean there are still people you know and I think a few years ago they tried to do a segment on the um, the old age home yeah the motion picture I remember that fund. yeah and I you know I don't think that people cared in a way that they might have cared. 20 years earlier. Sure. Um, and that's an incredible place. Um, really? Yeah. And, you know, it's just full of people who want to tell their stories. Do you go there? I've been there a couple of times. And my husband is, like, involved now in um, fundraising for it. Ryan is? Yeah. And, uh, like, but who's out there? <laughs> um, I'm not exactly sure who's there right now. I know that um, Bob Mirish, mm. who was Walter Mirish, he just died. He was his nephew, I think. He he was. I visited him there a few years ago. Huh. Um, and, you know, his dad produced some like it hot. Oh, I remember. Um, I just didn't. Alan Garfield die there uh, over COVID. Oh, maybe. I think. Yeah, Marsha Hunt died there. Mm. Um, so she was like one of the last like blacklisted people who was still around. Um, and I think one of the Selznick sons was there. I'm, I'm not sure if he still is. Really? Yeah. Is it a nice place? Yeah, it's great. And they oh. love it. Like, people who live there love it. Really? It's a community for them. And, Where you know, is it? It's in um, sort of Calabasas. Huh. Well, it's pretty out there. Yeah. Oh, and, and it's uh, it, it comes with the pension-ish? Yeah. yeah. If you work enough over the course of your lifetime, you're entitled to it. Wow. It's like the VA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I mean, you know, again, that kind of, like, brings it back to Bob Hope. Yeah. But, um, yeah, just the stuff, like, felt like it was— very present, and if you were interested in movies, you wanted to know about it and, not and that long ago, and now it doesn't feel that way. And I mean, now it's just like it's so hard to get people interested in movies at all. 
Yeah, because they don't have a context, right? Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, I think in a lot of ways what you do, and I don't know many other like high-level film critics other than Mark Harris mm -hmm. because I don't read a lot of them. I guess I don't know if yeah. A.O. Scott is – I don't know. It doesn't seem like he's really in the realm of it. Well, he's, now he's leaving. He's, he's, he's moving from being life? a film <laughs> – no, no. <laughs> I don't know about that. But he's moving from being a film critic for The New York Times to being a book critic. Yeah, see, like, where's his commitment? <laughs> but, like, I read he that – He put in some good time. He did, but I. but there just doesn't – seem to be there's something about what you're doing on an intellectual level is using film film history the business of film as a portal into cultural history mm -hmm. and 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 a way of of assessing changes and shifts in politics culture uh you know the way people engage i mean it is the window yeah. and it's something we used to all share i think that might have something to do with it mm -hmm. so we're not on the same page anymore yeah. and i think you kind of pay reference to that in some of the some of the uh, podcasts where it's like there was a time where we all saw the same movie yeah. Right? Yeah. Gone. Absolutely. I mean, some people, I guess, think that it, it can still happen with something like Top Gun. But yeah, but like, I, I mean, I, there are people who care about Top Gun Maverick. I'm not one of them. And so it's hard for me to tap into what that is that makes everybody want to see that movie. Well, I mean, there was like there was a point where movies kind of shifted into more of an amusement park ride mode mm -hmm. where it wasn't about assessing a film. It was about, you know, this experience of 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 almost a virtual reality experience, like flying. Right. Like it felt like a lot of these movies were just rides. Yeah. And, you know, that collective thing of everybody watching the same thing, it's still happening in TV. Kind of. Um, I mean, if it gets enough juice. Yeah. But, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that just falls away. Well, yeah. I mean, we call, we talk about the slot bucket of the streaming services where slot it's like, bucket. it's like they're just pouring stuff out there. Right. But some of it, like I just went and watched a, uh, like, I don't know why I decided, just because no one seemed to give a shit about it, that Amsterdam was a bad movie. Yeah, I heard you talking about it on the podcast. It's, gr it's yeah. a great movie. I, I haven't seen it, but I'm, <laughs> something that I've been something that I've been really examining a lot as I talk about in the in the '90s season that I'm making right now about yeah. movies like Showgirls or sure. or Sliver, which is a movie I've always really liked. But like these movies got such eviscerating reviews, and it became this thing where culturally you couldn't. To say like, oh, but actually I liked it or, you know, but yeah. what about this aspect of it that's sort of interesting? Like the conversation just stopped at like, this is this is a bomb. This is a turkey. I don't even know where the conversation is. I don't even know where to find it anymore. I'm mm -hmm. starting to like, I can't decide whether I'm old <laughs> or I, I don't look at the right websites, but I don't know where the conversation is. I just know that somehow or another through whatever algorithms I'm attached to, mm -hmm. you know, Amsterdam got dismissed. And and at some point, you know, on the plane, I was like, how bad could it be with Christian Bale? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's like a very deep movie. But that's neither here nor there. So <laughs> when do you decide that uh, that film is, is going to be your life? Well, I was always interested in it. I was watching old movies from a young age. And then I, like— you know, was sort of an indifferent student. So I was not going to be able to get into like an Ivy League or like a no. great college. And so I set my sights on going to art school because you were allowed to stop taking math and science. Oh, yeah. And so Very I, bad at both. I kind of only applied to art schools and I ended up going to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, which is uh. an incredible place where they don't let you, they don't make you pick a major. Yeah, so you can take classes in anything. What's it called? School, the, the School of the Art Institute yeah. of Chicago. Okay. It's, it's connected to the museum there. Right, okay. Um, and they have an incredible um, just art house cinema there, 
um, actually, like right when I got there, Gene Siskel died, and they named it after him. So it's the Gene Siskel Film Center. Oh wow! Um, and I'd always like gone to repertory cinema in Los Angeles. I'd been, you know, obsessed with video stores, yeah. always watching stuff, but I had never really been part of like a social scene of people my age who were right. into this stuff. Yeah. And in college, I was able to, you know, like on a Friday night, go see the Brisson movie that they're showing at school. Yeah. Um, what's, so, the, what's the name of that other beautiful theater there that like... There's I, a music, not, the music, music box. box. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the other one. That's great. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was just part of my... It became part of my social life in college to like, you know, go see a print of Lolita or right. whatever. Um, yeah, me too. I was a film studies minor. But like, yeah, I guess that it's still a a, a type of community mm-hmm. that happens in, you know, some schools. Yeah, right? and some cities. I mean, yeah. there's, there's definitely a passionate repertory cinema scene in New York. And, still? You know, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like I'm, we're friends with Natasha Leone and like yeah. she like hangs out at film forums still. Um, like <laughs> yeah. there are still people who are who do that. Yeah. Here in LA, it's much more diffuse. Like yeah. there's been, especially over the past couple of years, like there's been some theaters closing and changing management and now there's some new things opening up. So I hope that it kind of gets a post-COVID. What's the new ones resurgence. opening up? Um, do you know the video store Vidiots that was in Santa Monica? No. So that was a sort of a Santa Monica, LA video store mm-hmm. institution. They closed down and this woman, Maggie McKay, um, kind of took on the collection and has been trying to find a space for it. And she's built out of like an old, like silent era movie theater in Eagle Rock. Yeah. She's restarting it as a movie theater and a video store. But they have a new, if you drive by, they have a new marquee up now that says Vidiot's coming soon and they're going to open in the next few months and they're going to have repertory cinema, you know, indie film screenings and a video store and like kind of a community center around that. Wow. Was that, I think I know that place. Was it a church for a while? Yeah. Okay. I know where that is. Yeah. yeah, it was like this weird Christian church for a while, and before that was sort of this empty space. So there are people who are still passionate about it, and you, we just kind of like need spaces to go to, like both in real life and online. Yeah. Letterboxd is huge. Yeah. You know, a lot of people are into that. I don't do Letterboxd because I feel like it's sort of like what I do for a living. What is Letterboxd? Letterboxd is a social network where you can basically like um, keep track of all the movies you watch, rate them, write oh, short reviews, sure. and then like comment on other people's pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Now, when you were in school, like, because like, I found, because I'm always looking for answers that will explain everything to me. Of course. <laughs> Who isn't? And I, but like when I was studying film criticism and you're reading, like, I just remember, like, there, there's this one book that I can't, like, I can, there's the Yuri Lotman, <laughs> the semiotics of cinema. It's like I couldn't penetrate it. And I thought, yeah. like, it's all in here. Why can't I get yeah. it? No, I mean, I definitely had that experience with, like, Deleuze and Guattari and— Yeah, what the um, hell was that? <laughs> What's that other guy's name? Was it Wolin? Who, uh-huh, wh- Peter Wolin, Peter yeah, Wolin yeah. and Youngblood was it? Mm-hmm. Another guy? Uh, Andrew Saris? I mean, I oh. love Saris. Um, yeah, he's great, yeah. But, the, I mean, for me, like— because then I went to grad school at NYU in cinema studies to get yeah. my master's degree. And I'll, yeah, a lot of that theory, you know, is impenetrable, and it feels like it's so far away from the thing that brought you to it of just, like— being, you know, enraptured by what was on screen and wanting to know more about it and wanting to understand how it works. But then the thing that kind of actually, like, hooked me was yeah. this guy, Stanley Cavell. Do you know who he is? Of course I do. My yeah. my buddy, Gus Blaisdell, mm-hmm. in New Mexico, edited or was best friends with Cavell, The Pursuits of Happiness? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. And this idea of bringing the philosophy of skepticism to and it sort of laying it over the way classical Hollywood cinema works. Well, how, what is that? Give me a practical example of that. So the basic idea of skepticism is that you can't know another person's mind. Okay. And so in any human interaction, um, 
you're constantly playing this game of like what you're putting out there, right. but also trying to guess what the other person is thinking. Right. And, you know, he, he, Pursuits of Happiness, like that's probably his greatest work. And it, okay. it lays those ideas onto um, the classical romantic comedy, the screwball comedy, and what he calls the comedy of remarriage. Yes. And like this basic idea of a movie being about two people who know each other. Maybe they used to be married. Maybe they used to date. Yeah. And they think they hate each other, but they're actually meant to be together. Right. And what they have to do is they have to get over the fact that they can never know what's going on in each other's head and just reach like some kind of mutual space in the middle between the two of them. Okay. And so that, those ideas, you can apply them to, to many like classically constructed. So this was sort of the uh, portal into your uh, approach. Totally. I mean, it, for me, it was like, I had never really been able to take the things that I was reading in philosophy and um, adapt them to cultural or, or crit, like art criticism before yeah. the way that you're sort of supposed to at that academic level. And Cavell, I just understood it immediately and it allowed me to kind of move forward and think about things in a more critical way. So, but that what you're talking about isn't necessarily, it's not like going to be in an actor's preparation or even in a director's mind. But it might be. But huh. I mean, and it's also probably not in the average viewer's mind. Right. Until you start thinking like, what, like, what are these movies really about? Um, you know, how, like, what are they saying about the way human beings interact with one another? Right. And even if it's a 1930s movie made under the production code where everything is coded, you know, there's no foul language. Right. Like, there's maybe a kiss, but, like, there's an ellipsis where they're going to have sex. Yeah. Like, how do you understand what's really going on? Right. So, but, and that's open to speculation, right? Mm-hmm. It has to be. Yeah. So that's the, that's the issue with, with, you know, cinema academics is that I had an argument with someone recently that you know, a person just sort of like dismisses movies in general because mm-hmm. uh, they prefer books. And okay. I'm like, why are you comparing? What, what is that? That's like it's like dismissing painting. Right. So, like, I, I don't even know what that means. It's a, I think it's a limited um, uh, concept of what, what film is and, and, and what you can sort of project onto film. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, you know, not everything's for everyone. I mean, that's I all I can say is, like, I mean, I'm not interested in, like, graphic novels, for instance. I can read them, but I'm not, you know, like, I can engage with them, but mm-hmm. I'm not crazy for them. Yeah. I find that, fortunately for me and unfortunately, is that my obsessions with things, they don't last forever. Yeah. They, <laughs> <laughs> which is why I'm not an academic. They peter out. Yeah. But I've been having this weird kind of uh, re-engaged experience around the art of cinema with Kelly Reichardt's movies. Oh, my God. She's so good. I can't wait to see the new one. I saw it. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. But, like, when you really think about, like, her, like, especially, like, I just, I'm very hung up on, and it plays into exactly what you're saying, Mm -hmm. in Old Joy. Do you remember the Mm -hmm. film? Do you know the scene where they're both in those hot tubs? <laughs> yeah, it's and kind of the key scene, yeah. It's the key scene because you don't know, like, it's exactly what you're saying is that, you know, we're, as an audience member, projecting onto both of those characters saying nothing. Yeah. And then what's going on between them during the time that they're saying nothing is so loaded up in the silence that she mm-hmm. creates. The the aesthetic experience is kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, and that's something that a movie can do that books don't do in the same way because a book has to put it into words. You know, Godard talked about this a lot. Is like what cinema is, it's images, it's not yeah. language. Right. So, all right. So when do you start realizing that uh, – so it happened in graduate school that, you know, that was where it no, all No, that's why up? I went to graduate school is because right. I was— But before um, you yeah. had the Cavell uh, catharsis, <laughs> you were kind of like, you know, wandering in the world of criticism? 
so I ended up going to grad school because I didn't know, really know what to do after undergrad. Um, I think probably like a lot of people, but I I had been in school and then I moved back home to LA, moved in with my dad and tried to get work. And, and your mom was gone. My mom died when I was eleven. Oh, sorry. Yeah. That's so heavy. yeah. Uh, it was definitely heavy for my single dad who was sort of left with two daughters and yeah. had not been kind of around previously and mm. then suddenly had to be everything. Mm. Um, anyway, so I'm like 23 and I moved back in with him and I'm trying to get work at like post houses, like trying to get work in the industry. Yeah. And, you know, just couldn't get anything. I had no connections, like no one to help me out. And so I was like, I'll apply to grad schools and we'll see what happens. And then I got into this program at NYU and they offered me a big scholarship because I had like I'd done a lot of critical writing in undergrad because, yeah. you know, you have to write papers and stuff. And I was, I sort of found that I had a, a knack for it. And you were just doing it for, for school or for, or for school. the school paper? Or no, they just, see it? For, no, yeah, just like uh, school assignments. You know, I I did like this project as an undergraduate where I, um, <laughs> I wrote this long paper about um, the themes of globalism and colonialism in the music videos of Duran Duran. <laughs> and so that was my, that was like my writing sample for grad school. Um <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So it's, you know, was Rio there, and Hungry Like the Wolf. So <laughs> was, was there some humor in that? or? Yeah, like, there was. I mean, I think it was a little tongue in cheek. But yeah. at the same time, like once you've, you know, read Edward Said, like you see you this see it stuff. Everywhere. Yeah. You can't unsee it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So I, you know, I applied to NYU. I got in. They offered me like a big scholarship. And, you know, I was still sort of unsure if I wanted to do academia. And my dad was like, well, you have to go. Like, yeah. You, you know, yeah, you have to do this. That's so, what your brain wants you to do, right? Yeah. yeah. So I moved to New York and I went to graduate school. And then um, before I finished graduate school, I started getting work as a film critic writing about new movies. Where? Um, I, there was this website. Do you know who Jason Calacanis is? No. He's like a web entrepreneur guy. Okay. And he started a series of blogs like yeah. around the same time that Gawker was starting. Okay. Um, and so they started a film blog and I am— you know, they just needed like cheap labor yeah. to run it. Um, so I was cheap labor, but I was also like, I'm going to turn this into my fucking career. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I did. Um, it became really successful really quickly. And then he sold this blog network to AOL. Yeah, I remember and AOL. He made, yeah, <laughs> he made like $25 million and like some of us got like $60,000 a year jobs working for AOL. Was that good? No, it was terrible. It was <laughs> awful. And so I was immediately trying to figure out a way to get back into film criticism. And so I did kind of work my way back into film criticism. And then I finally got hired at the LA Weekly to be their film editor. So I moved back here. Yeah. Wow, that's a pretty uh, nice full circle. Yeah. I mean, the LA Weekly was so important to me growing up just as like the Bible to repertory sure. film screenings, but also like punk shows, indie rock. It was like, you know, how you found out where to buy Doc right. Martens. Like, yeah. It was so important. The good food. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember the LA Weekly. And those papers are gone. They've been long gone, right? I think it still exists, but it got bought by like Orange County Republicans. So it's the opposite of sort yeah, of Yeah, but the that, that whole sort of street rag thing, you know, yeah. where, you know, you, the thing you rely on, it's all gone when yeah. we live to see it. I mean, mm -hmm. I live to see more of it, I guess, mm -hmm. but obviously, but it's really, they're, they're, no one engages that way anymore. You yeah. don't go to the little free paper machine. And yeah, no, I mean, it was such a part of my life of, you know, like going to the coffee shop, picking yeah. up the LA Weekly, yeah. seeing what was going on that yeah. week. I mean, but the fact that that you found this niche, a niche, not just at, at LA Weekly, but now, you, you know, you're a, a kind of audio star. 
and you can do because I can tell when I listen to the stuff that it's very thorough. Mm-hmm. And you know, each one I mean to do like what is it, eight episodes on Dean Martin and, mm-hmm. and Sammy, which is the one I'm kind of hung up on because I I was wondering what your sources were because I read Dino mm-hmm. and I brought that up to Jerry Lewis and he's very anti Dino. <laughs> you know, he doesn't like that book. Yeah. But Jerry Lewis was kind of snotty to me. Yeah, but I'm not that, sure what he likes or like. Yeah, oh, I mean, I was supposed to do an hour with him, but, you know, he cut me off at a half hour. And he's just like, <laughs> that's it. But it was not because I did anything wrong. That's but, just him. But he brought up that. I brought up the Dino book. Mm-hmm. He's like, that book is bullshit. And I, what does he know? You know, I mean, he I think he sat down for a long interview with Nick. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, all these guys are kind of nuts at a certain point. But and also but, self-mythologizing in a way where they don't want anybody else to tell their story. It never ends. Yeah. I mean, like Paul McCartney now with the Beatles. Like, come on. You can't just, you know, you can't backload and revisit whatever the psychodynamics were between you and John and then, you know, decide that you've both recovered from it. (laughs) Right? Uh, Anyway, another problem. But uh, my point is, is that these are theses, right? Yeah. That you're doing. Yeah. You couldn't, it's not, I I don't think the, the way that you produce it, you can't, it wouldn't be the same on paper. Yeah, I mean, I guess nobody else thinks so either because I can't publish a book to save my life. So. You can't. I published a book a few years ago, and um, I got kind of a big advance, and then it wasn't a bestseller. Oh. And so now— What was the book? It's called Seduction, and it's about 10 actresses that Howard Hughes was involved with. Ten? Yeah, and it's kind. It's basically kind of a pocket history of his time in Hollywood from the 20s until he died in 71, yeah. I think. And through the stories of these 10 actresses. And did you did a, uh, the Howard Hughes series, didn't you? Yeah, it's kind of started as that, and then I sold a book, and then um, I did a couple of sort of promotional episodes about stories that didn't quite fit into the book. It seems to me, though, like having—I I mean, I don't have all—you know, I, I will eventually listen to uh, all this stuff. But, no, it's a lot. It's, um, I've been doing it since 2014, you know? I mean, yeah. obviously, like, you've been doing it longer. Yeah, but, but it's different. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've got to write and, and think and, <laughs> and execute with, with a certain amount of order. I just kind of see what happens. <laughs> But um, but it struck me that it seems foundationally some of 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 what you do was kind of and I don't know the dates of things, but you know, kind of debunking Hollywood Babylon mm-hmm. is, is sort of the agenda of the podcast in a way. Yeah, that, that you know, you have this very famous book that that kind of becomes mythologized as you know these sordid tales, and and you sort of. You know, fact check everything, but that that sort of opens up the wind, the door to it seems like most of what you're doing. Yeah, is that possible? Yeah, I mean, Hollywood Babylon was something that was important to me when I was like 20 years old. Exactly, and, um, it was kind of my gateway drug to sort, especially silent stars, like seeing the photographs of, of somebody like right. Gloria Swanson or and, Fatty Arbuckle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and then you know it be, those things those things were not that easy to see at that time even on VHS and so you'd have to go to screenings but they're hard to they're hard to contextualize aren't they yeah I totally mean, I, absolutely and and that's one of the things where like the personal stories matter because they get people excited like once you know about like the the actual sordidness not necessarily the Kenneth Anger version but the actual sordidness of somebody like Clara Bow's life or Mabel you, Norman yeah, yeah then you want to see what they looked like and you want to see how they moved and what kind of power they held on audiences at that time right and and try to feel it yeah. you know at that pace and with that you know intensity yeah yeah and then so from there where do you go how long does it take you to get to Manson um, that was pretty early, actually, because I started the podcast in April 
2014. I think I did Manson about a year later. For me, I came to it through Doris Day. Oh, with Melcher? Yeah. Okay. Because it started, like, I got the idea to do the podcast season, not because I ever really cared that much about Charles Manson, but because I was at home watching TCM and there was, like, a Doris Day film festival. And I was like, oh, I don't actually know that much about Doris Day. And so I started looking her up. And it's, you know, it's, like, on her Wikipedia profile. Like, some people think that, like, the Manson family was trying to kill her son. Right. Record Um, executive. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, well, if you can connect Doris Day to Charles Manson that way, like maybe there's something to the way that Manson moved through Hollywood. Well, I, I mean, it's one of those things. I've talked to Ed Begley about it, and mm-hmm. you know, and again, you know, you did a whole piece on it. But like, he was like, there's always a Manson. They're just not. <laughs> they're just not usually killers, right? Do you, you know, what and I mean? there's always like some guy, some guy who yeah. like comes with the girls and the drugs, yeah. and then disappears in the night. He'll do you a favor or whatever, yeah. and he probably wants something, but you keep pushing them back, and hopefully they they just sort of find their level, right. not kill everybody. Right, right. <laughs> so you saw that as a, a window into the period. A window into the period and, like, to talk about sort of, like, you know, because those movies of the late 60s and early 70s, like the Nicholson and the Warren Beatty and, you know, I grew up sort of, those were, like, the gods of cinema who were still Absolutely. walking the earth, you right, know? Right, sure. And this idea that, like, like something so sordid and, like, you know, evil is like so close to it. And but then like kind of really want to like unpack like what what is it that we call evil? Like it's really just a con man. Like it's really just somebody who wants their own fame and like they want their own attention. In 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 the case of him. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's it for me it was just it was interesting thinking of it as like two the two flip sides of celebrity. Okay. So you know, one being the the kind of antichrist of celebrity, and <laughs> the other being, but equally, yeah, there, there's moral bankruptcy on both sides of it, right? I mean, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I like, mean, for me, like the thing that was the most disturbing was reading about Roman Polanski and like the way he actually, like his what his relationship with Sharon Tate was actually like, and like how heartbroken she was a lot of the time. What was it like? I mean, he was, you know, just casual, so casually cruel to her. You know, certainly was not faithful to her. Yeah. Um, she had had kind of an expectation of what their marriage was going to be. And yeah. then, you know, she's nine months pregnant and he's not around. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like, you know, in dealing, like, there's a big focus in in your work around women in the business and in Hollywood and, and how they're mistreated and how they're kind of marginalized. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I also try to talk about the ways in which they were able to use the power that they did have yeah. and the power of their images on screen, you know, but... I mean, it's very frustrating that even still to this day, like, the movie books that are able to get published that sell are generally about men. Yeah. Um, And there's just so many stories that, you know, I'm so attracted to that I feel like need to be told. What happened to uh, Veronica Lake? (laughs) I mean, she kind of just, like, wallowed in alcoholism. Really? Yeah. That's how that ended? I'm just see. I'm just starting to watch some of these movies now because I, yeah. I couldn't like I, I had a hard time when I was younger to you know locking into movies from the 30s and 40s and yeah. stuff other than noirs. Yeah, uh, just because it, they just kind of irritated me for some reason. But she was I I literally just feel like I had the first experience with her like a, a month ago. What did you see? Um, I saw one. Oh, what did I see? Sullivan's Travels. I saw that. But then I saw some uh, a kind of a noir with Blue her. Blue Dahlia. Al- yeah, yeah. I watched that. Was that yeah. Alan Ladd? Yeah. Yeah. That stuff's great. And that's like, you know, where the Black Dahlia kind of got her name from because the Blue Dahlia was out at the time. Yeah. When the Black Dahlia's body was found. So in in the series that you did about the 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 dead blondes, yeah. what what was the connecting tissue? 
It was that I wanted to learn more about certain people, yeah. um, like Veronica Lake. Um, and then I knew that I could tell this Maryland story in the middle of it. Yeah. And that that would be sort of like a, you know, everybody always wants to talk about Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. So that would attract people to it. And then I could sort of force them <laughs> to hear stories about people like Peg Entwistle, who they've never Peg thought Entwistle. of before. She was murdered, right? No, she jumped off the H oh, the in the Hollywood sign. Oh, that's a, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm really interested in this idea of what the blonde represents, mm. and especially in Hollywood as as kind of an ideal, yeah. and how artificial it is, but also how it's like this combination of, especially when a, a young blonde woman dies early, yeah. it's like it's like endless youth, yeah, and it that's so tapped into the way Hollywood deals with women in terms of disposability, yeah, like it's you know sort of preferable to freeze someone like Marilyn or Jean Harlow in amber like at a time when they're gorgeous yeah. and like never see them decay. Right. And and that was invented by Hollywood really, right? The idea of the blonde goddess. I mean, that kind of blonde goddess sure, but yeah. certainly I mean, you can go back to to the stage and to advertising and mm. paintings, yeah. you know, for this idea of like the milky white skin and like a, a kind of like, you know, angelic beauty. Yeah. Well, how? when did that get dirty? <laughs> I mean, Hollywood might have made it dirty. But, I mean, again, it's like so much of this stuff is happening at this time when, you know, movies are being highly censored. Yeah. And so the things that passed as erotic for Gene Harlow to do would be right. considered so tame now. Yeah, yeah. But they really, like, just seeing, like, side boob was yeah. very daring then. Yeah. I, or the it, double entendre, you know, the the— the insinuations of sex. So, like, when you think back on all this research that you're doing and, and the the initial obsession, you're like, we're going to go back to the beginning of it all, and you move through the <laughs> silence and you do all this stuff. What is there some sort of fundamental mystical darkness <laughs> that you see kind of moving? Because I get kind of hung up on it. Mm-hmm. There's a chapter in my book, The Jerusalem Syndrome, that I wrote about being uh, in cocaine psychosis and becoming mm-hmm. obsessed with the Sunset Tower building. Uh-huh. When I was standing out on the porch of the Old Ciro's, which was the comedy store, yeah. I had this, these mystical revelations yeah. about, <laughs> about a certain— I got to read that. It's it's I really put a lot of work into it. It's it's I'll give you a copy. Okay, it's great. it's just the it's the comedy store chapter, but you'll yeah. probably correct some of it cuz <laughs> some of the information I just kind of pulled in terms sure. of who was at Ciro's, but I think it was close. Mm-hmm. Um but but I did feel that there is something about manufacturing the illusion. Mm-hmm. And and there is something about the initial sort of crew of Jews that you know designed a reality that they could exist in. Yeah, totally. Uh that is 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 almost uh, magical, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't want, I don't like using words like magical about things that are real. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> magical know? in the sense because, that, Especially when it comes to Jews because it's like, it, it's like a real quick corner to anti-Semitism <laughs> saying like these magical Jews are inventing things. Okay, okay, but, okay. Well, I mean, maybe magical is not the way, but, but but there is something about the nature of, and I don't remember who said it, but one of them said, you know, that that the the racket of film is amazing because you know people are are paying for memories. They're right? paying for something they don't keep. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And who said that? I can't remember. It's in that book, Empire of Their Own. But oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so like, but there is something about they harness some yeah. sort of like it's not it, it's it is magic. Film is, but I mean, it doesn't have to be Jewish magic. <laughs> I, get I mean, it, it, it kind of was like. <laughs> In the beginning, but yeah. I mean, you, did you hear about that thing with the Academy Museum where they were like trying so hard to be inclusive and like they launched with stuff about um, Almodovar and Spike Lee uh-huh. and like they had nothing about the Jewish moguls. Huh. And so, you know, then there's backlash to that. And it's like, 
I mean, I think the thing with film history is that it's so there's so much to talk about, especially in terms of like trying to do this corrective. And like, you know, I talk about like the secret history, which for me oftentimes is is just the result of bringing a 21st century lens to the 20th century and being like, what was really going on here? What were like, you know, what were well, yeah. these real experiences? You know, but you still have to talk about the actual history. Well, I mean, you still I just have to saw, talk about the, the scaffolding. Right. And I just saw Elvis's uh, doc, you know, Elvis mm-hmm. Mitchell's doc about all those black filmmakers yeah. that no one in the silent era. Yeah. That, yeah, Oscar Michaud. Yeah. yeah, it was like, a, 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 but then again, like, I wouldn't know all that. I'm not being mm-hmm. ignorant. It's just yeah. like, someone has to tell me. Right. I have to take a fucking class. I don't know. How is everybody yeah. going to know that? I mean, I think that's the service you're providing. Right. Because you get to a certain age where you think you know things, but unless you're going to go to the new school and yeah. take a <laughs> weekly class, on, you're not, how are you going to know stuff? Right. I mean, that's the thing. There's a lot of history podcasts, but it it's really hard to do something that um, tells stories that either people have never heard before or to tell stories that they have heard in a way that makes them feel new and makes you feel like you understand something new But generationally, generationally, you have to assume that nobody's heard fucking anything. Yeah. No, that's – I do. <laughs> I mean, like, I I think sometimes I've, like, as a mistake, I've just assumed that people have the same cultural references that I do. And as I've gone on, I have to understand that, you know, especially as I get older, a lot of the potential audience is a lot younger. Sure. And, well, what do you find? I can answer my uh, fundamental mystical darkness question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, it's like I, I think that – at the end of the day, like, these are people who go to work every day. Like, they're regular people. Yes. But there is something that can be sort of tapped into. Um, I can't remember if it was Luella Parsons or Hedda Hopper, but one of them, like, was asked about this in the 50s. Yeah. About this idea that, like, well, you know, it seems like so many people in Hollywood have these dark lives and, like, so much, there's so much tragedy and, so like, drugs and adultery. And she was like, actually, this kind of thing happens in every town. It's just that sure. nobody cares because right. they're not making movies. That's true. Um, and so I do think that there is something about Hollywood where there is – certainly there's darkness, but it's just kind of regular lives writ large. It just seems like it's larger than life. Huh. Well, I, I kind of like that. And I, I – you know, I, I address that question when people say, do you think there's more drug addiction with comics? I'm like, mm. no. There's cops, plumbers. There's yeah. all kinds of drug addicts. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's any worse or it's any different. But once you start talking about the power structure of Hollywood, like mm-hmm. what struck me even listening uh, to the Dino and Sammy one, and I'm sure it's a recurring theme, is that the, the sort of the nature of the studios, the nature of the mob, and the nature of owning talent. Yeah. That you know that the one thing that's different is you have these huge people that that have huge charisma and, and power in terms of how they perform and people wanting to see them and developing parasocial relationships with them, but they're treated like garbage yeah. and they don't even own their own souls. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm really interested in that interconnection. And if anything is like mystical or like a conspiracy, it is like it's the banks and the studios and the mob and like criminals all working together. The same and, with any global business. Yeah, in a way, yeah. right? Yeah. And and what ends up happening is that the workers, like, lose out. Right. And the workers have to be major stars. Right. And so they, they're projecting this idea of wealth and, like, a fantasy lifestyle. But obviously, in some cases, like the case of Sammy, it's like, you know, it's a fucking hustle and scramble every single day because there's no ownership. Yeah. But, but they also, you know, the weird thing about talent is 
you, you, talent and charisma, the nature of it. Uh, it's like that uh, Ann Magnuson song, the uh, Bongwater song, Talent is a Vampire. Like there, <laughs> there's, there's like, I, I always remember that because mm-hmm. if you, if you have it, you have to make choices around it because it can drag you for your entire life because of the f- fragility of your ego and the strange insecurity that comes with it most of the time. Yeah. And I, and if, you know, asking about like why I, I'm drawn to women's stories, I think for women, it's, that is, First of all, there's always this idea of a shelf life, you know, historically yeah. in Hollywood, there's been like maybe you have 10 good years if you're really lucky. And then there's always this idea of like, you know, you might have some talent for acting or singing or dancing, but really you're here to look good. And then there's the way that you keep that talent in line is by saying you're here to look good, but you don't look good enough. So it's always about undercutting the ego. Right. Right. And 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 that is a surefire way, not unlike negging. Yeah. You, you know, yeah, it to, is. Yeah, it's institutionalized nagging. Yeah, to to keep control of these people. Yeah, and and keep them off footed, yeah. off off kilter. Yeah, I mean, you know, the like the real thing about um, you know, this transition from silence to sound is that it was an opportunity for studios to cut big salaries of the major stars. Yeah, so it's like you know, if you. And also the stars who were, like, difficult and, like, felt like they um, had a right to behave badly and, like, party yeah. and, and stuff like that. And, yeah. like, most of the cases were not really about, like, they can't talk. Interesting. Right. So they they, they it's not unlike uh, the Oscars and mm-hmm. why they were invented. <laughs> well, yeah, the Oscars were absolutely invented as, like, a labor strategy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah to, just give them an award that'll placate their egos. Yeah, and they'll do what we want. Yeah. for how much we want to do it for. Yeah, but I did. So was the shift to talkies? Did that did that sink the original United Artists, or did that it survived? Right. It's. I mean, yeah, it's, it's still it's, around. It actually, it yeah. still exists in you know some shell of a, of a brand, and yeah. it's, certainly it's a library. Yeah, and you know they put out movies. They're putting out movies in seventies, eighties, nineties. You know, but yeah, from the original, but not obviously not the only person. Mary Pickford and well, Charlie the only Chapman. person who did kind of like stick around on the board for many decades yeah. was Mary Pickford. Oh yeah, yeah, wild, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I I try to like every time I read this stuff, <laughs> you know, and you're you, you you know your husband is a successful and mm-hmm. big time director, so you know he's you, you know he has access and is part of these upper level conversations around how this business works. Mm-hmm. So now you're, you're kind of privy to some of that. Yeah, I mean, he still kind of acts like an independent. Sure. But, like, when you read, like, I just read a novel. You ever read Bruce Wagner's book? Uh-huh. Oh, my God. Yeah. How fucking good are they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. But I just, the Marvel Universe one, did you read that oh, last no, one? Oh, my them. God. It's hard. But it's I mean, actually weirdly hard to find. Did you read Force Majeure? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's the classic. Right? Yeah. Bud Wiggins comes back in Marvel Universe. you got to <laughs> okay. get a copy. Um, but I just read Tim Blake Nelson's book about. Oh, yeah. I heard him on your show. It sounded really interesting. And he but, was on Ryan's show. He was? On Poker Face, yeah. Oh, uh, he's a great guy. Yeah. But every time I read these books, I, I and, and even listen to your podcast, I'm like, I'm not in show business. I'm not, you know, I'm not. I'm. Is, well, I don't feel like I don't feel like we live in show business either, you know, because we're not like we're not having the lifestyle that these people have. I guess so, but is it? It must be a fundamentally different business now because yeah, totally. you should theoretically. I mean, you have a choice. We have a choice. <laughs> you know, I'm not at the level of show business that that Ryan is, but. But, you know, you have a, a choice to be ostentatious or to let your ego get away from you and, uh-huh. and build up a bunch of gambling debt and be a philandering <laughs> weirdo and get screwed up on drugs and have yeah. to, you know, get fixers to help you all the time. I mean, we definitely know people who are screwed up on drugs. Sure. And, you know, people who um, live like a different lifestyle than we live. But Yeah. And some of them have no choice. That's yeah. the other thing that I think – I don't know if you addressed it 
in in any of the series that you, you know these people don't have a choice but to hang around with each other. They, <laughs> it's an insulated community. You well, go to parties and it's sort of like where else are they going to go? Yeah, that's something that's really interesting when you do go to like a Golden Globes party yeah. and you see like Jennifer Lopez like really cutting loose on the dance floor. Yeah. And it's like this is she can only do it because like she's surrounded by like Scarlett Johansson. She's safe. Like, yeah. She's not going to be surrounded by uh, freaks who want to take yeah. selfies. Yeah. So I think that has to play into the the weirdness a little bit. Yeah. That it is sort of a secret society or it was. I mean, there still definitely is. I mean, it's. I mean, for me, it's like I don't understand why people who are super famous go to places like the Polo Lounge still. Yeah. Because it's like you know you're going to be photographed. You know you're going to be seen. You know. Well, you're, that, like sometimes every, that's why they do it. I know it's, but it's like every conversation is going to be eavesdropped on, and it just seems like so. You know, you're on stage, and that is why they do it. But that's like not the life that I would want to live. No, of course not. But we're talking about Hollywood. <laughs> That's true. I mean, there's a reason why I'm behind the mic and not on camera. <laughs> but like, I th- but I guess that was my point earlier about uh, you know when you talk about the shelf life of women, they they know it going in. Well, everybody thinks they're going to be different, right? I guess everybody What's different. Thinks though? Everybody thinks they're going to be different. And this is not just a Hollywood thing. Everybody does things thinking like, I know all of the risks, and it's not going to happen to me. Mm. That's just a human nature thing. Yeah. Like, I'm going to be the exception. Like, it's like dating a bad boyfriend. Like, everybody warns you against this guy, and you're like, oh, no, but, like, our thing is different. It's drugs. It's alcohol. It's, like, it's everything. It's like, like, uh, you know, you can delude yourself with food. You can be like, oh, I've lost 20 pounds, so now I can eat pizza. No, you can't. You've lost 20 pounds because you stopped eating pizza. Right, but if the nature of business, and also we're talking about, like, like the past and the present, there, there seems to be more opportunity now. For, for actors. Well, there's and, more shows, for right, sure. Right, that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah. But if you're looking to work, yeah. you know, you, the possibility of working is 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 bigger now, in yeah, a way. Yeah, but I also think that for most people, like, the quality of life is much lower than it was in the time that I'm talking about on my yeah. show. You know, I mean, like, streaming salaries are obviously, like, a pittance compared to what people used to make on network TV. Right, but 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 if you're willing to, to sort of adapt to the fact that you're not going to be a star, but you're mm-hmm. going to work, like, mm-hmm. I would imagine that, like, a, a studio player, you know, who's, you know, just above background wasn't mm-hmm. making a fortune. Yeah, but you can make a middle-class life for sure. Yeah, but yeah. that's not possible anymore, I guess, because the work yeah. is random and there's no consistency. And there's no residuals. That's right. And at least you had a studio contract. Yeah. Like, you, you were, if you were re-upped for the year. I mean, there were always working-class actors. Yeah. Sure. You know, I mean, like, I even, like, people who were on network shows, like, I lived around the corner. I lived in, like, the flats of Studio City, yeah. like, in just sort of a two-bedroom house. Mm. And, like, George Went lived around the corner from us, you know? it was There was always kind of, especially in the Valley in Studio well, City, <laughs> North Hollywood, there was always kind of a working-class. Well, uh, they presented as working class mm-hmm. because they were not ostentatious and mm-hmm. they managed their money properly. Yeah. But George Went was not <laughs> – he was a little above working class, I would imagine, after the run of Cheers. Sure. Yeah. But I know what you're saying. Yeah. The, I mean, Brian Cranston was sort of the same way when mm-hmm. I talked to him. He comes from a studio family. Yeah. And he has a very working class idea of what acting is. Right. I mean, if you do come – I mean, there's you know, there's sort of so much criticism of nepotism. But if, you, if you've seen your parents go through it, you've seen your grandparents go through it, at least you can have some kind of perspective. But, what the, I, the, but that's such bullshit. There's like any, every – almost all sort of like uh, – uh, Trades businesses are so and so and sons, <laughs> yeah. you know, plumbers, pizza places, everything. Yeah. It's, it's Joe and sons, Bob yeah. and son, you know, yeah. Russ and daughter. It's, you I know, mean, it, uh, you know, we've worked in England. My husband shot a movie there, and and there, it's like the nepotism is such that like you can't get a job as a grip unless your grandfather was a grip. You know, it's like the whole. That's sort of like their version of unions. 
Yeah, kind of. It's right. like you train your son to right. do your your trade. That's right. Um, and so that's like a completely different thing. I mean, that means that it's hard for people of color and women to break into those jobs. But, okay. Um, but, you know, I, I, you're right that it is kind of like having like a three-generation plumbing business on yeah, some level. Of course. And there is something genetic about one's ability to fit on screen, it seems well, to me. Isn't I mean, na- I mean, nowadays there's, you know, uh, genetics are only part of it because of all the mani- manipulation you can do. But I guess so. But um, it, but it did it does it sort of is amazing that you know all the Baldwin's are okay. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, like Kate Hudson is legitimately one of the most beautiful people you've ever seen, uh-huh. and like that there's a reason why. <laughs> yeah, I just I think the whole nepotism thing is sort of a, 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 obviously a, a right wingy slag. Like when you did the series on the blacklist, did it mm-hmm. did it was did it, it was it scary to you for the future in any way? Oh, I mean, yeah, totally. I was doing that like right around the Trump election. I think I did that season in 2016. Mm. So of course, I mean, you're always thinking about these things. I'm always I'm always trying to um, bring today to the past and bring the past to today. And like really like use what it's like to be alive now to think about what it would have been like to be alive then. Yeah. And but because something else is happening with the demonization of Hollywood. I mean, I guess it's always sort of been there. This has been happening forever. What what is the source of it, do you think? Jews. It's anti-Semitism. For me, it's like that's the core of it. Yeah. It's fear of Jews having too much power. Yeah. And to some extent, fear of outsiders of any kind, you know, I mean, you know, racism, um, women can't have too much power. Gay people can't have any power. Yeah. Um, That's all in the history of Hollywood, like from the very beginning. Huh. And it like if, you know, it's it's lavender marriages. It's like you can be gay like as long as you keep it in the closet. Right. But that was here, too. I mean, that was was institutional. That wasn't from the outside. It wasn't, you know, working people, uh, you know, being filled with the idea that they're they're being fucked with by Jews and oh gay no people. absolutely that was the way people wrote about the movie industry yeah I mean in coded ways but that was why they had to bring in Catholics to do censorship <laughs> so huh. like as as an appeasement to the people who are like well these Jews are are um, you know taking all the money and and putting evil ideas into our children's heads and that's really become sort of fine tuned right now mm-hmm. right the idea of indoctrination it's 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 right now it's it seems to be very efficient and very creepy. Yeah. Not, yeah, it's terrifying. I mean, I'm doing a podcast season about sex in movies at a time when, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric about like we should never film sex. Well, I mean, what is happening because that, you know, you you're sort of documenting the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, around sex and it was like it was sort of a prerequisite <laughs> for actresses to be willing to do in some it. cases, I mean, and it's really interesting when you think about a movie like Batman Returns, right? Uh-huh. Which is like a movie that's supposed to be for everyone. And then you have this incredible Michelle Pfeiffer performance where she looks like a dominatrix. Yeah. And like her sexuality is so much a part of it. And now it's like you cannot cite any sexuality in these big comic book movies at all. That's weird because so much of the fandom is driven by utter repression. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, completely. And but it's like give him a throw him a bone. But I literally. think I think that the way that like generations younger than me, I think more and more people are like seeing sex makes them uncomfortable. I get that, and and my producer Brendan, uh, you know, has has cited that, and I, I guess through reading and through his own intuition that you know what is now being thought of as as cringy mm-hmm. is coming from a, a sort of um a snarky naivete that vulnerability in and of itself 
uh, is appearing to be cringeworthy to yeah. a generation of, of young people right now. Yeah. And certainly sex uh, is thoroughly vulnerable in a way, right? Yeah. So what do you make of that? Why is that happening? Um, I'm still trying to figure it out on, I guess, like a larger scale. I mean, you can cite these sort of different phenomena. I mean, obviously, like, there is this political wave of, again, like trying to take power away from anybody but white men that, you know, that's kind of leading the anti-gay, anti-trans situation. Yeah. And then it does – there is a bleed where it's it becomes like it's, it's not okay to just crack down on – um, on trans people or gay people. Now we have to crack down on women. We have to take away their autonomy. Yeah. Um, and so much of this stuff is about just like pretending these things don't exist. Like, yeah. And trying to take it out of the public space. You know, I mean, did you see the thing today where Florida's trying to pass some bill that kids can't talk about having their periods in school? Mm. It's like, I mean, this is really going back to Victorian ideals of like, you know, just keep it all behind closed doors. Well, that and, and a lot of the Florida stuff is just him, you, you, you know, promoting his willingness to be uh, a full-on fascist despite right. his kind of wormy personality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but do you, so you see that. It, but young people, you know, when when you talk about the audience, or you talk mm-hmm. about, and also the nature of celebrity now, and, yeah. and b- because. But you, people are the thing is though is that there's still people who are excited about like you know, people's sex lives, you know, like yeah. think about like the whole Olivia Wilde, Harry Styles situation. Sure. That became promotion for that movie. And then that movie had one of the biggest opening weekends of any film directed by a woman. Yeah. What do you think of that movie? I think there's interesting stuff in it. And then like story wise, it kind of gets away from itself. But. Yeah. A little bit. Right. Yeah. Like, oh, she's just laying in the bed the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, it seemed like a cop out to me. But, oh, that's what's at the top of the hill is the reality that they're asleep. All right. But so you just see it as a, a, a kind of a fascistic bleed of of where culture is right now. Well, you know, there's so there's that. And then there's like people who are so far left that they've kind of be, like met the right, you know, yes. like underneath. Yeah. And so, you know, there is definitely an aspect of that, of, you know, the, the trad wife um, sort of trend of like um, it's it, a woman – it's you're doing self-exploitation if you dress sexy. This idea has come back. And this idea was in the 90s as well. I mean, it, the, you know, there was um, a real conflict between different types of feminists in the 90s in yeah. terms of, of the kind of 70s um, feminism, which was very anti-sex work, yeah. very much like we have to um, not play to the male gaze. Yeah. And then this sort of, um, you know, post post. Yeah, porn feminism. Porn. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was saying like, no, it's my body. I can do whatever I want with it. And I, I mean, I kind of just fall on like body autonomy above all. So yeah, well, that seems practical. <laughs> you got to find somewhere between Andrea Jorkin and and you know, yeah, and and Camille Paglia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So actually, like that's what a lot of erotic eighties and erotic nineties is is like trying to find the common sense in between those two poles. But it's sort of interesting that this generation that is you know uncomfortable with sex has never had more access to sex mm-hmm. than any generation. Uh, but I, I don't know what you know what the internet does to to vulnerability. I don't know what the internet does to the idea of intimacy. Or, or what sex even is. Yeah. But I mean, I guess we're not really having that conversation. We're talking about movies. <laughs> yeah. But, but I mean, you know, a lot of people will say, well, the reason why we don't need sex in movies anymore is because we have so much porn. Yeah. But 
I don't know. I just feel like movies and any kind of art should be able to talk about anything in human experience. And when you take this out and say, like, we're not going to do this anymore, you're by extension, you're also not really having movies about adult relationships. Well, yeah, adult movies are hard to come by. Yeah. Aren't they? Yeah. I, I feel very un, untethered from from whatever's happening. I'm starting to not know whether or not, you know, I'm just, in, uh, like I said this earlier, but if that my point of view and my point of reference is that of just one of the new old guys mm-hmm. or that we're all sort of floating on our own now. Yeah. I, I don't know. What do you sense? Well, I'm just, I find, I think there is like a collective popular culture, but I just find myself not very interested in it. What is it? I mean, it's like, it's the comic book movies. It's certain TV shows. But that's I, like, child, right? This child stuff. Well, Succession is not child stuff. That's but like, good. But I can't seem to care about it. Really? So, yeah. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I don't think... know. I just, there's a lot of like TV shows that, you know, that's like everybody says you have to watch them. And then I try to watch them and I find sort of no interest. Well, in where do you find yourself watching? What do you watch? I mean, of new stuff? Yeah. Um, you know, I wa- I've watched most of the movies that were nominated for Oscars this I year. I did too. Um, I loved Banshees. Yeah. I th- just think that's like kind of an all-time movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah I- my friend, uh, I-, I found it to be, and oddly, I don't know, maybe I'm getting sappy <laughs> as I get older, but I'm like, it was a little sad. It was, it was really a little bleak. Sad. And and but my my uh, my producer was sort of like that is the Irish unconscious and that <laughs> that is a fundamentally Irish movie. I mean that Colin Farrell performance is just like it really broke my heart. Oh my god! Just, you know I'm almost tearing up thinking about that movie right now. That's how much that movie affected me. But then you know again it's like that's a movie that's like is sort of in this cultural conversation. But like how many people actually saw it? Right. Wins no Oscars. Um, I what about re- Tar? I think Tar is. Very, very interesting intellectually and uh-huh. not very entertaining. Right. Um, and so it's – I think what it's doing conceptually is really exciting. Yeah. And then it's also three hours long and the story doesn't really start until an hour and a half in. Yes. Um, and so I think it's really – it can be really challenging. And well, I think that there should be a conversation about it as being challenging. I think instead people are either um, you know, saying it's a masterpiece or saying fuck tar. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I found I found I had to go back to it a couple of times mm-hmm. to sort of like decode some of it because it yeah. seems like Todd is is you know really honoring his mentor Kubrick in mm-hmm. in certain respects where there's Easter eggs and weirdness in there. Certainly, yeah. That you, you kind of have to you, you know someone hit me to it. I think it was some article I yeah. read. and I was sort of like, what? Yeah, I, didn't I put mean, that together. I mean, something that bothers me a lot with contemporary movies is a and this you know. I'm aware of this probably because of studying Polly Platt, but a lack of concern with production design as carrying meaning. And I think Tar yes. is an example of of production design and costume design and, you know, every aspect of an aesthetic having an enormous amount of meaning. And it's like it's not it's not like an instant gratification film at all. So let's let's close out with talk about I found myself enjoying this year's Oscars. Yeah. We Did were, you? Well, we were there. Um, oh, so I, I I saw it from a different point of view. Yeah, um, we had a, a good time at the awards. Um, you know, again, it was like um, I was a little heartbroken that this movie that I think is like an all time movie, you know, didn't make it. Banshees. Yeah, but um, I thought it was a good year. Yeah, I mean, it. I, did you see Navalny? No the documentary. I mean, no. that is not that is so well made and such a gripping story it's like watching an action film it's okay. really incredible i watched a, I, I now in terms of docs i only watched that fire of love fire one. of love is great um the nan golden film is phenomenal what is that about 
so it's about it's called All the Beauty and Bloodshed, and it's about Nan Golden, um, the the photographer. No, I know her show. Who stuff, um, yeah. it's kind of a combination of sort of her life story, but like framed around her mission to get the Sackler Company's name off of. Um, art galleries and yeah. museums because they're they profited Oxycontin. from the um, yeah. yeah from the opioid crisis and it's sort of about her history with drugs her fairly recent overdose um, and it's also kind of about like this art scene that she was part of and like it, it was sort of all outsiders coming together that she was documenting but almost everybody was either bisexual or a drug addict yeah. or both and so she goes to rehab sometime in the early eighties and she comes back and like half her friends are dead right from AIDS yeah yeah. Like I yeah. w- with David Wojnarowicz, her yeah. is that how you say? Wojnarowicz, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I remember that whole crew because I was sort of in New York around a little after the, the time yeah. they were kind of popular. Yeah, I remember Dave's activism uh, art. Is uh, yeah, I got to yeah. watch that because I've always great. liked her a lot. But but I found that you know in the same way that you know I don't know what's up with Jack. <laughs> or, or whether, uh, you know, it matters to the Oscars. But, you know, I grow nostalgic for for that. You know, there was that period in the 70s where old Hollywood and new Hollywood were, were integrated yeah. uh, and around each other. And mm-hmm. it was kind of beautiful. Yeah, it's like Gene Kelly and Jane Fonda at the same party. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and even like, you know, Jack and, and, and Gene Kelly. Mm-hmm. Like there was yeah. that crew. And I remember Jack Nicholson telling a story about the Golden Globes when Gwen Ford used to host. Yeah. And Rita Hayworth would come out shit-faced. And, <laughs> and Jack just talks about how, like, you know, he just had this look on his face like, yeah, I, all the time with this, you know, that kind of weird <laughs> intimacy. Yeah, I mean, there are two recent examples of Oscars where they kind of brought out somebody older, and both of them, I think, were just really eviscerated. I mean, one was, and this is actually the moment Liza? that— Liza? Liza was a few years ago. That was the second one I was going to say. And uh. the, But the one that actually is one of the impetuses for me starting the podcast yeah. was when Kim Novak came out. Um, it was in 2014. She came out with Matthew McConaughey, and she had had, you know, evident plastic surgery, and it just turned into this whole, like, you know, 10-day internet cycle uh-huh. about whether or not it was okay for Kim Novak to have had plastic surgery. And it's just like, like the again, it's just, it's the ultimate example of a woman who was so valued for the way she looked, and her looks being used by Hitchcock in such an evocative and mysterious way, mm. and now she looks different, and it's her fault that she looks different. And it's like, well, would you have preferred that she, like, aged without any kind of intervention? Because you wouldn't have been okay with that either. Well, I, like for me, the feeding frenzy that that happens on the internet, like you know, it, the fact that you have to adapt to that and integrate it into your own sort of assessment of culture, it's a fucking nightmare. Yeah, it's like why is that conversation even happening? Because it's it's faceless usually, and it's driven by you know uh, you know content whores who want clickbait, <laughs> and it, and it's just like what? Why is the discussion even happening? Yeah. Why can't it just like in the old days, it would have just been like you know. Yeah. Yay, Kim Novick, right? Right, yeah. And there'd be like an a, you know, an article on the front page of the calendar section in the LA Times that like recapped the whole show. That's it, man. And no commentary. Yeah. I mean, uh but like I found like something I talked to the Daniels, you know, mm-hmm. and they're goofy, yeah. bright guys. Yeah, we're friendly with them. Yeah, but I found that that just the amount oddly you know, that moment where where you realize that, you know, Spielberg's gonna sit this out. Yeah. It, it was kind of uh, stunning. We kind of realized that on the award circuit, you know, at some point he stopped coming to stuff. Like he was like, it's not worth it. Well, you know, it's a flawed movie. 
And, yeah. you know, w- w- whatever. I, I don't have to sit here and, you know, <laughs> and, and shit on Steven Spielberg. They're very interesting to me, though, because I kind of know James Gray. Gray. Oh, yeah. You we guys. love James. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. But he's it, one I mean, of my favorite people. It's great. Great. And a, a real character, you yeah. know, and really sort of a, and has I an love appreciation. his movies. Yeah, they're great. I, I do, too. But it would, to me, it was interesting. And I haven't talked to James about this or Steven. How, like, prim- the, their primary casts are for both Jews. of their – they're not Jews. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah, and it's um, and then you know you just hear about Jennifer Lawrence being cast as Sue Mengers and like things like that, and you know as a Jewish woman, it's frustrating. It's definitely frustrating, and it's like it it does seem to tie back into this thing of like the foundation of Hollywood, where it's like they're coming after us because we're Jews. We have to bring in a Catholic. Like we can't like get we can't right. be too openly Jewish, and that means casting women who are not Jewish to play building Jews. an illusion we can live in safely. Yeah. Uh, but I felt like this. There was a new energy to it that was kind of uplifting and, and, and deserved. I yeah. thought, in, in terms of the whole Oscars somehow, and yeah. I thought Jimmy handled it very well. I thought the jokes were pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I like that. Like you know, dumb old shtick doesn't really work. Eventually, they'll stop doing it. Yeah, you know, like you know, with the donkey. <laughs> the donkey was better than the bear. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, yeah. The cocaine bear is such a funny thing. It's like it's so ephemeral. You know, like that movie is going to have been in theaters for two weeks, and well, then it's I, she just was disappear. plugging the movie. Yeah. I mean, I mean, she. Yeah, that was yeah. A, a plug. Yeah, really. but you know, it's like it's very different from the Oscars I grew up with, with like Jimmy, uh, Billy Crystal, sure. um, doing doing dance. that kind of bit about the movies of the year, not about the movie. Right, that the is opening that bit, the dance, and you have the bear come in and whatever, yeah. and there was a you know shtick. Mm-hmm. That tolerance for shtick is less than Certainly. it used to be. Like, I mean, I, that's that's cringe, right? That <laughs> it is. Like, how was the history of the world part two doing? I don't know. I don't. I don't see streaming numbers. Most pe- most people who make stuff on streaming don't see streaming. Numbers. I know. I, I'm just wondering because, like, you know, that 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 type of comedy for me was always right on the edge. I can appreciate yeah. it, but it was always sort of like, I don't know, is that funny? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Mel Brooks has a, a a storied track record of ups and downs. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, this was a, a fun talk. Yeah. 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 Um, good time. Good. Did we cover enough? Sure. <laughs> Unless you have more questions about Jewish mysticism in Hollywood. <laughs> I do, man. It it never it never ends. Yeah, I mean I, I think that i I've actually been thinking about trying to do like a documentary series that does center that as a like a way of reframing this Hollywood history. Because it just seems Which, like how how specifically? Just this idea that like there's this always this push and pull between like the anti Semites who are trying to like destroy Hollywood and then Hollywood being self perfect self protective. Yeah. Huh. And where would you start that? Uh, probably around 1908, <laughs> maybe 1915. Well, I mean, I, I, it, it's, I, I read Empire of Their Own, you know, and it was mm-hmm. sort of a life changing thing for me. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I have a hard time sometimes um, when I romanticize the the nature of Hollywood not to become mystical. Yeah. Somehow. But that's, I mean, that's the thing. It's like I, I go back and forth between like really romanticizing it. And, you know, my favorite movie of all time is A Star is Born, the 1954 version directed by George Cukor and starring Judy Garland, yeah. which to me is just this ultimate thing of Hollywood, like trying to acknowledge its darkness, but in a way that ultimately in the end reifies the lightness and like the redemptive possibilities of movies and of Hollywood. Um, and I just I love that push and pull. Yeah. What do you think of the new one? 
I like. I think Gaga's incredible. I think she's one of our greatest stars. Yeah. Um, as a movie, it does not match the level of yeah. my favorite what'd movie you, of all time. What do you think of the Christopherson Streisand one? I I like that one too. You know, yeah. I mean, the I guess like the rock and roll aspect is not as meaningful to me. Sure. As sure. the Hollywood. Yeah. Setting, you know, yeah, but yeah, I love yeah. her. I love him. Who was the the male in that original? Was it James Mason? James Mason. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. James Mason walking into the sea. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good talking to you. Yeah, you too. There you go. The new season of You Must Remember This premieres tomorrow, March 28th. Get it wherever you get podcasts. And go back and listen to some of those older seasons, too. Um, I like talking to her. It made me feel smart. Hang out for a minute. Folks, Fridays on the Full Marin, we have a show that's geared for wrestling fans. But last Friday, we posted something that comedy fans might be interested in, too. Writer and comic illustrator Brian Box Brown came on the show to talk with Brendan and Chris about his book, Is This Guy For Real? The Unbelievable Andy Kaufman. In your book, you uh, you have a, a scene where Andy goes to Graceland and uh, gets a private tour. And uh, did did Elvis actually tape all of uh, Andy's appearances? I don't. I mean, that's what he says. You know. You know. They say that. You know. It's been well known. He said a, few, a number of times that Andy was his favorite. Um, did his favorite impression. And you know, I think there's a lot to that too, because like when people, anyone, does an Elvis impression, they often, the first thing they say is, thank you very much. Right. Mm-hmm. That was Andy's thing that he said. That was, that was his thing that he said at the end, because that's what foreign man was saying after all of his jokes. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Then he does Elvis and he says, thank you very much. And Elvis's voice. And then everybody does. It's like when uh, the George HW Bush impression from Saturday night live, that became everybody's, Bush impression. And that was Andy for Elvis, I think. You can get that episode plus all our bonus content, including the latest Ask Mark Anything, which we'll post tomorrow when you sign up for the full Marin. Go to the link in the episode description to subscribe or go to WTFPod.com and click on WTF Plus. Slide guitar seems to be the thing right now. Seems to be the thing.
Boomer lives. Monkey, LaFonda. Cat angels everywhere.